Good morning, brothers and sisters. I pray that you all have had a blessed week. It is May long weekend, and I know many of your minds are turning towards the summer months. I know our family is desperately missing having our friend groups all come together and meet regularly, and most of the time this would kick off bonfire and camping and fishing and large group gathering seasons. Uh, Lord willing, we will be able to safely grow the size of our gatherings until we are able to meet again as a unified church congregation. This weekend also marks the beginning of a six-week set of our church pulpit being gymless. Um, it was such a blessing that we've been able to organize a group of men from our church to come together and fill the pulpit and to free our wonderful senior pastor to spend time with his daughter Courtney as she expects her first child and Jim and Deborah's first grandchild. And I'd ask that all of you be praying for Courtney and Kyle and the safety of all of them and baby. So I'm going to be starting our six weeks without Jim and we're going to be digging back into the book of Hebrews. Many of you will remember that uh, I started Hebrews a month ago on Palm Sunday and we are going to spend two weeks in Hebrews here at the halfway point of May. So uh, I have a few quick details to um, remind you of about the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author of this book is, but we can draw some really solid details about who the book is written to. Various clues scattered throughout the book place this in the hands of uh, mid to late first century Jewish believers. And these believers had received the message of Christ and the gospel not from Christ himself, but from a secondary source. And Hebrews is a book that is steeped in the Old Testament and just 13 chapters in Hebrews, and the Old Testament is quoted some 40 plus times. And the focus of this book is to lift up and place Christ on a pedestal above anything and anyone else in history. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ is a core theme throughout this book. Our message last month focused on chapter one, verses one through three, which talked about Christ's supremacy over the prophets of the Old Testament. And this week, we're going to be looking at verses four through 13 of chapter one. Uh, here we find the author of Hebrews confronting a common area of confusion among believers, not just at the time, but I'm certain over the last two millennia, this has cropped its head up time and again, and it's Christ's supremacy over angels. Many of you who have been churchgoers for the last few decades would remember that in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was an angel mania that swept through the church. There were all sorts of questions coming out about angels. Who are they? What do they look like? What do they do? Um, where are they? Do we all have our own special guardian angel? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Angels were the talk of the day in the late 90s and early 2000s. And our passage today is not the last time this topic comes up even in just the book of Hebrews. 
And obviously there was a similar fascination with angels in this, um, in the time of the writing of this book that we had in the early 2000s. And the author doesn't hesitate to let his readers know that angels, like the Old Testament prophets, have their place and their purpose, but are fully subordinate and inferior to Christ. So as we start this morning, would you join with me in prayer? And we will dive into our message. So would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, you know the desire of our hearts to be able to meet together again as a unified congregation in person. But Lord, until that time comes, we are so grateful that you have provided opportunities for us to meet in this way, that we are no less a church body, that we are functioning in more social isolation, but we are not isolated from each other. Um, Lord, we've been granted opportunities to connect with one another via technology that would be unprecedented in any other age, and Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, as we spend time in your word this morning, we just ask that you would teach us what it looks like to recognize the supremacy of Christ and how that should affect our hearts and minds. Lord, we commit the duration of our service into your loving care and ask that you would be glorified in all we say and do. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start reading this morning on the tail end of verse 3 of Hebrews in chapter 1. And you'll see in verse 4 that Christ is said to be superior to angels. And then the next 10 verses after that back that claim with a series of quotations from the Old Testament. And again, we're starting in Hebrews chapter 1 and the tail end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? As I said in this passage, we have the claim made in verses three and four that after making purification for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then we have seven Old Testament quotes, and they're arranged into three sets that back up and flesh out this claim. 
So if we are to believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, as we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, then we need to ask ourselves why it matters that Christ is superior to angels and why God might have placed this passage here and what we have to learn from it. Well, firstly, we must realize that Christianity as a whole is based on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He is supreme over all beings. Whether you take Islam or Buddhism who would say that he was a prophet, he was a messenger from God, not God, but he was a messenger from him, or Judaism who sees him as a almost Messiah, but not quite, he wasn't the Messiah, but he might have been a good teacher or he was a deluded teacher at worst. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would say he is an archangel. Mormons say he is a lesser God, a son of the true God. It doesn't matter which view you take. If you believe that Christ is anything less than what Scripture claims he is, then you're fooling yourself if you believe that there's any salvation to be found in Christ. Either Christ is capital G God, he is who Scripture claims him to be, and as such, he is the one true way to salvation, or he is nothing. He is a deluded man from the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So that was the first point. Secondly, we must understand the superiority of Christ over all things to properly appreciate the glory of God. The better we understand God, the more glorious he is. To understand that Christ is greater than angels and the magnitude by which he is greater is to more accurately understand how truly great he is. Look at verses three and four of Hebrews chapter one. These are the crux of this whole passage. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This passage is both beautiful, but it can also provide some serious theological consequences if we misunderstand it. If Christ becomes superior to angels after making purification for sins, which is how it might seem at first glance, then maybe the Mormons are onto something. Is Christ a lower tier deity that he was born of the true God and is being granted increasing importance and value? No, indeed, Christ has always been superior to angels. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. Christ always has been, and Christ always will be. The key here is in the wording. Look at the back half of verse four. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. An interesting piece that ties some of this together is that in Roman society, when a son came of age, and if he was approved by, as a man by his father, 
he would be ceremonially received and bestowed with his name. Once that boy has proved that he is worthy of being called the son in the family, he was then ceremonially said, you are indeed my son. You have proven that you are that. Christ was always God's son. He was always deserving to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. But if we do as we should, interpreting scripture by scripture, I want you to take a quick look in Romans 1. We are told in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection was the affirmation of all that he already was. It was saying, you know what? You have said you are this. You have claimed you are this. And this is the affirmation that that is the case. And that passage in Romans 1 also applies to Hebrews 1 verse 5 in which we find our first set of Old Testament proofs that Christ is superior to angels. Here the Father says of Christ, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. These quotes come from Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7 14. Christ was and always is the son. But by the resurrection, God the Father declared before all creation that Christ alone is the worthy heir and the true Son of God. No angel has ever been granted such a title. Many of us have spent time memorizing the various uh, creeds and confessions of the church, and one of the most famous and the most prevalent is the Nicene Creed. It's a historic confession of the church, and it opens by saying, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. That is one of the great confessions of the Son of the Most High God. In verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 1, this Christ that was declared to be the Son of God is also shown to be the rightful object of not only our worship, but the worship of the angels. This couplet of Old Testament quotes emphasize the transcendence of Christ. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse six is a quote that kind of doubles up from both Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 96. These angels worship Christ. These are the same angels that would leave men and women that they visited in puddles of fear and trembling at their very presence. But then verse seven says, not only do these angels worship him, they are winds and flames of fire. There's two main interpretations of that comparison of angels. And the first being that as a wind comes and goes and as a flame flares up and is gone, 
so are these great and powerful spirits before the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ our Lord. The second is that fire and wind are both tools used by God and as such, these angels are simply another tool to be used in the hand of Christ. Both are communicating roughly the same thing, the very thing that our passage seems to be getting at, that Christ is so much greater than the angels that he makes them seem as almost nothing. They are tools to be used or a vapor in the breeze in comparison to the greatness of Christ. And if in this passage the angels are temporary, verses eight through 12 tell us that Christ is just the opposite. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. I sincerely hope that as you're reading through this, you're getting a sense of the intensity with which the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate a point here. In this first chapter of the book, his whole point, Christ is supreme above the prophets, and the prophets were the best that mankind had to offer. Christ is supreme above them, and above angels, the greatest of spiritual beings. And perhaps many of us don't have the overinflated view of angels that seemed to be the case with the original audience. Jim and I discussed this week while I was in the midst of writing this message how this might have been the case some decades ago, but today the focus on the spiritual realm of angels and demons has faded somewhat. And our question as we were talking about this, well, what is the, what is the new spiritual preoccupation? And before it's out of my mouth, many of you will already know what the answer to this is. The spiritual being with whom many of us has become so inordinately preoccupied is the same one sitting in your chair at home. We have elevated ourselves between the Oprah cult of self-determination and you can do it and positive thinking and the prosperity cult of your best life now and God wanting you to have what you want when you want it. The religion of today is me, me, and me. How then do we combat this religion of me? I want you to place your name in the capstone verse of this passage, verse 13. The verse itself says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And to which of you has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
And as God ever said to Joshua Bateman, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Any claim we have in this entire passage this morning, we only have in Christ. God has indeed called us sons and daughters like we read earlier in the passage. But that call only comes out of our identification with Christ. In Christ we are called sons and daughters of God. But even there, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. We cannot make ourselves equal with him. Verse 10 through 12 speak of Christ laying the foundations of the world and of him rolling the world up like a used garment. Think of a time where you've stood before a mountain and felt your own impermanence and your own tininess. And then realize that the same Christ by which we have been called into God's family is the very one who called those mountains into being out of nothing. And he is the very one that could turn them to dust at a word. There's a tension here. Christ is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's worshiped by angels. He laid the foundations of the earth. This is all beyond our realm. Christ is in another tier from us entirely. But then we read passages like Romans 8, 29, which says, those whom the Lord foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or just jump forward in your book to Hebrews chapter two, verses 11. For it was fitting that he, who is Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, who is Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers. In verse nine of chapter one, we are told that the Father has anointed Christ with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Christ receives the ultimate glory. He receives the ultimate joy. He has been anointed with gladness beyond his companions. But our joy is not lessened by that fact. In fact, it is heightened. I can't help but come back to John Piper's concept of the Christian hedonist, this idea that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. We are called sons and daughters of the Most High God, and Christ is the firstborn. Not in that he was created or had a beginning, but that in all creation, it all proceeds after him. And we are honored to be called brothers by our Lord, that we are called companions of Christ beyond whom he has been anointed with the oil of gladness. I will admit that I definitely struggled with this passage this morning. If like we talked about last month, Christ is supreme over the prophets, then to say he's supreme over angels seems like uh, preaching the same message twice, beating a dead horse. Yes, he is supreme. Then I remembered one of the beautiful things about the book of Hebrews. Only the letter to the Romans and the book of Matthew quote the Old Testament more than, than Hebrews. 
This has led Hebrews to be a leader among the New Testament books in giving us a really well-rounded understanding of God's overarching story through Scripture. If verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1 here introduced our need to understand the supremacy of Christ, then the rest of chapter 1 helps us to see just a portion of the passages that support this not just in his supremacy to men and mankind, but even over the heavenly beings. The entire account of scripture comes full circle in a book like Hebrews. All of the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ. And in Hebrew, in Hebrews, the author dials in on this. Here in chapter one, he goes so far as to say to these Jewish believers that he's writing to, the prophets that you once followed, Christ is greater. The angels that you revere, they are but winds or flames before the surpassing greatness of Christ. They bow down and worship him. God, for his glory, recorded the redemption story of mankind in scripture. He is the object of the story. His glory is the aim. And God is glorified to not spare his own son, but give him up for us all, all who would confess the name of Christ as Lord and believe in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead. The all-surpassing supremacy of Christ is our hope. If I preached on that every day for the rest of my life, I could not exhaust the richness of that truth. And I pray that every sermon I preach, every conversation I have, every action that I undertake, that it would be steeped in the truth of Christ and his sovereignty. And I also pray that anyone who doesn't know or who hasn't submitted themselves to his rule would know his greatness. I can speak, I can preach, I can explain, and I can demonstrate from Scripture the truth of Christ's supremacy every day. And indeed, I should be doing those things. But until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, opens the eyes of our hearts, each one of us will remain enemies of God, perishing objects of wrath to whom the truth of the gospel is folly. May God open my eyes, may God open your eyes to see the supreme prophet, priest, and king, King Jesus Christ, by whom we were granted to have the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we cry out to you to teach us the supremacy of Christ, to show us the supremacy of Christ in all things. Lord, that that would shape every moment of our days. It would shape the way we interact with our friends, with our families, with our acquaintances, people we meet on the street, Lord. And Lord, that we would daily be seeking to know you more, to better understand who you are. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, 
that we might know you, we might seek you and find you. Lord, you promise us that if we are faithful to seek, you will be found. And Lord, we pray for each member of our congregation that they would take the time to seek for your truth. God, as we go about our weeks, we trust in you and your sovereignty over all that is occurring in our our world. You know the yearnings of our hearts. And Lord, I just pray that you would find ways to make yourself even more glorified among the nations through this difficult time, through the isolation and the frustration that we've been going through. We pray that we would be able to see the good that you are working in the midst of all these things. Lord, we thank you for all these things and for all your blessings. We commit our congregation, Elk Point Baptist Church in the Lakeland to you in the week to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read for you the closing words of Hebrews. I had said in our original message that I was going to try and close with the same words of the author of Hebrews. So would you hear the benediction from Hebrews? Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will May he produce in you, through the power of Jesus Christ, every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week. We love you and we miss each one of you, and we look forward to being able to meet again in the days to come.